0: Well, I, this is my favorite room for teaching in here. It's something about the big desk and people gather around it that I think encourages discussion and, and interaction. So for 45 minutes or so, we're going to talk about the Christian life. And uh, I think everything I say is sort of online with uh, where the Advent stands. And there's so many long-term <clears throat> adventures here that they can chime in at any point uh, on any aspect. Where do you begin when you start talking about the Christian life? There's a a favorite text of mine um, that I often use for weddings, but it really is meant for the household of faith, for the church. It's Colossians chapter 3 and begins in verse 12. And to me, Paul just so beautifully expresses the meaning of our life together in the church. I'm sure you've already heard... Um, people say that the Christian life is not meant to be lived individualistically. It's meant to be lived in community, in the body of Christ. And when we celebrate uh, communion, as we've just done in the nine o'clock service, we are celebrating the real presence of Christ in the body of Christ, in brothers and sisters, in the Lord. So this text that Paul, I think, summarizes so beautifully the nature and the scope of the church. Colossians 3.12, therefore, as God's chosen, holy, and dearly loved people. Three ways that define us. Holy. And if you've got your Bibles open there, um, I can't... Uh, I, mean, I I probably won't memorize it just the way you've got it read there. But Colossians 3.12, Therefore, as God's chosen, holy, and dearly loved people, clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, with goodness. Bear with one another and forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all those virtues put on love which binds them together, in perfect unity and let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as members of one body you are called to peace and be thankful and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to the Lord and whatever you do in word or deed Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. To me, that's just a beautiful caption of the Christian life. Our identity, chosen, holy, dearly loved. What it means being in Christ now in terms of the work of righteousness, not works righteousness, but the work of righteousness, of clothing ourselves with the fruit of the Spirit, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, And at the heart of our life together is the fact that in Christ, because of his sacrifice, we're forgiven. And in that passage, Paul says, Bear with one another, forgiving forgiving whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And I don't know about you, but nobody has done anything to me on the level of what I have done in separating myself from God to forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all those virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. And then the spiritual discipline of letting the peace of Christ rule, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You know, right there, if you wanted a a description of the life of faith and a description of the Christian life, it's right there, I think, in Colossians. If we were to ask Jesus to speak on the topic of the Christian life, I think he might point to his 15-minute sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It only takes about 15 minutes to read that. It's amazing how long it takes us to understand it, but um, and that's what this sheet basically outlines for you. Notice how we, I'm beginning with a, an Ephesians passage, which again, summarizes the Christian life beautifully. I'll say that the, I think, you can say this to us. I think, you know, you know that the Advent is a gospel-centered church. A gospel-centered church in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, based on the fact of what Christ has done for us, that salvation is by what Christ's righteousness means to us, his righteousness imputed, given to us, But then we're released, we're freed up, we're grace-filled, spirit-led to do what we were made to do in the image of God, to do good works. Saved not by works righteousness, but because we're saved, the work of righteousness becomes important for us. Articles 11 and 12, neighbors in the 39 articles, on the justification by man, we are accounted righteous before God only for the merit only for the merit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by faith, not for our own works or what we deserve. Wherefore that we are justified by faith only is the most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. This is our assurance of salvation lies not in our effort, but lies in what Christ has done for us. And then Article 12, right next, on good works. Albeit the good works which are the fruits of faith follow after justification, cannot put away sin and endure the severity of God's judgment, yet are they pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ and do spring out necessarily of a true and lively faith, inasmuch that by them a lively faith may be as evidently known as a tree, discerned by the fruit. Come to me, all you who are weary, Jesus said, and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if you need a fresh reading of that, Eugene Peterson's The Message may give it to you. Are you tired? We come from a variety of traditions, I'm sure. Um, when Andrew Pearson asked uh, this past year how many were cradle Episcopalians in one of the services, the vast majority of people did not grow up Episcopalian who now are members here at the Advent. We come from many different Christian streams. And it's especially good when people don't come from any Christian stream at all but find Christ here in the preaching of the gospel. And I believe that what's important here, and I'm speaking now as a Presbyterian, uh, that's how ecumenical um, evangelically uh, the Advent is. That out of a Presbyterian background, out of teaching theology at Beeson, which is predominantly a Baptist school, I'm welcomed here and embraced for what I can bring from the Word of God." And I think that that just that spirit underlies the whole ministry here at the Advent. What's important is the Bible, the Word of God, speaking of the grace of Christ and what God in Christ has done, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that's the foundation upon which we build. So my wife and I have found it really enjoyable to be a part of this fellowship. We've found rest for our souls because of what God in Christ is doing here. So Jesus on the topic of the Christian life, where could we find it where, like the Pauline passage in Colossians 3, where could we find it that it's kind of a case? It's right there. It's all laid out. And I think the Sermon on the Mount really lends itself to that. So I'm proposing that for the next few minutes, we go through that sermon so you see the scope of it and understand the nature of how he describes the Christian life. You remember that the Sermon on the Mount begins with eight beatitudes. That word blessed or happiness is a word that comes out of the wisdom literature, the Proverbs, the Psalms. Uh, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, and Job comes out of that wisdom literature what it is to really be happy. Macarius is the Greek word. And Jesus gives us eight descriptive attributes of the person who is blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the eighth one is blessed are those who are persecuted and reviled for my name's sake. These eight beatitudes are descriptive of not a means of grace, but a state of grace. When Christ is present in your life, you are going to know that you are utterly dependent upon his mercy. The deeper you go in the Christian life, the more sensitive you become to the distance between you and God and the need for his grace and mercy. The stronger you are in Christ, the greater the hunger for his righteousness, the greater the hunger for understanding his word. These aren't a means of grace where you try harder to be more dependent, where you try harder to be more sorrowful for sin. This is a state of grace, not a means of grace. This is the evidence of God working in one's life, these beatitudes. Humility becomes the foundation that God uses to work. Any questions?
1: You said was the word translated
0: mm-hmm. A simple word, ordinary word, not necessarily so religious a word. Uh, the happiness comes out of this complete dependence on the Lord, this honesty about our life before Him, this uh, desire, this of singular willfulness, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that hunger and thirst for righteousness. That eightfold beatitude description of blessing is followed then by two descriptive terms for the Christian. They're found in verse 13 and 14, salt and light impact, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. Salt and light is how the Lord sees us in the light of his gospel, his good news. Together, these eight Beatitudes and these two descriptive analogies, salt and light, define the Christian identity. It's something we're given. I think we're given a certain uh, attitude toward our our sin, a certain attitude toward our dependence upon him, a certain attitude that desires God, and that's an evidence of his grace. And then it's not like we try to be salt or try to be light. We are light. We are salt. And then there's a description of... Uh, Heart righteousness that uh, Jesus goes on to explain. Righteousness from the inside out. He says, don't let your righteousness be like the scribes and the Pharisees. An external sort of religious understanding. Your righteousness comes from within. Your righteousness is a heart righteousness that surpasses. Verse 20, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The only way our righteousness can be heart righteousness is by what God in Christ has given to us. It's not something that we've achieved or we've earned. And then, interestingly, Jesus doesn't begin with praying and giving and fasting. He doesn't begin with the kind of the spirituality that we might expect. He doesn't begin with a religious observation of what Christians are like. Instead, what he describes for us is how the world perceives us. And then he outlines these antitheses. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And he says that some eight times. Verse 21, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to the judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother or sister will be subject to the judgment. He outlined love instead of hate, purity instead of lust, fidelity instead of infidelity, honesty instead of dishonesty, reconciliation instead of retaliation, prayer instead of revenge. So you see what you've got described here, beatitude-based belief that's centered in the gospel, an identity that's salt and light in the world, and then a description of what the world sees In the Christian, love instead of hate, purity instead of lust, fidelity instead of infidelity, honesty instead of dishonesty, reconciliation instead of retaliation, prayer instead of revenge. That is what's supposed to impress the world about the believer, that life has been transformed because of Jesus Christ. And so while there's a great accent here, I think in the life of our church on the fact that it isn't, that we can't bring anything to salvation. It's all Christ and what Christ has brought to us. But with that then is the realization of really how Christ transforms us and brings us into the world as his representatives. And the power of that where you strip everything else away that you would maybe describe as as religious, ecclesiastical, the ornamental aspects, and come right down to an ordinary life that, because of Jesus Christ, has been transformed and centered and focused. And not selfishly, not individualistically. This isn't about your best life now. This isn't about your peace, your comfort, necessarily. This is really about what Christ does in us for the sake of the world. And just as he was sent into the world to bring about that salvation, he now sends us into that world. I found it interesting in the, you saw this in the translation in our worship guide, that uh, the Pool of Salamis means sent. The pool that's sent. And this this blind man, in a way, is sent uh, back into the world with a testimony that he's hardly aware of. (laughs) He's just struggling with trying to understand what is the the miracle that has happened to him, uh, but in so doing, bearing witness to Christ. The attitude-based belief, salt and light impact, and a heart righteousness that comes from the inside out. It's not externally imposed upon a person and then after talking about that heart righteousness page two second column Jesus talks about the hidden righteousness the hidden righteousness of giving and praying and fasting Interesting, Jesus had said about the heart righteousness, let your light so shine before people that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's how the world is supposed to perceive us. But this description of hidden righteousness says, do these things, praying, giving, and fasting, in secret. So your Heavenly Father in secret sees you. It kind of flips it. What we so often do in external religion, the praying, the giving, the religious rituals, those external things, Jesus here is advising that when those are really done devotionally and done personally, they are for your heavenly Father to see, not for others to see. Interesting just relationship between the external and the internal that runs right through this. Praying, giving, and fasting, those passages can be read. And now I'm going to go to page 3 and the prohibitions. The liberating do-nots. And this too is part of the gospel. Chapter 6 and verse 19 through 7 and 6. And there are uh, four do-nots that are described here. I'm giving you the headings there. Do not give your heart to material things. Do not worry about life. Do not judge others harshly. Do not force the gospel on others. Obviously, we could spend a lot of time talking about each one of those. But those are liberating do-nots. Don't give yourself to these four things, Jesus says, if you want to live the Christian life. I didn't invent them. Jesus gave them. Don't give your heart to material things. If you do, you'll be disappointed and you'll throw the life off. Don't worry about life. How do we really trust in God and lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge him? Don't worry about life. Don't judge others harshly. You could have anticipated that one. And number four, don't force the gospel on others. Beatitude-based belief. Salt and light impact. Inner heart righteousness that the world sees. A hidden righteousness of spirituality that is done for the Father in devotion. Praying and giving and fasting. And then four prohibitions matched by several imperatives. All of which are kind of concluding the sermon now. The believers to-do list. Simple straightforward, ordinary commands. Ask, enter, pay attention, obey, build on the rock. Any one of these could be used conclusively to end the sermon. It's as if Jesus is is making a point through variations on a theme. And then he concludes the sermon with the picture of building on the bedrock. Verse 24. The rain came down. The streams rose. The winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Amen. Sermon's done. I wonder if they said really good sermon to him. <laughs> we don't usually like ending on a down note, do we? Um, well, they're in kind of a composite, short picture, 15-minute sermon, Episcopalian length, you've got a scope of the Christian life. Beatitude-based belief with salt and light impact, a heartfelt righteousness that God has inspired leading to a social impact in the world, love instead of hate, purity instead of lust, fidelity instead of infidelity, honesty instead of dishonesty, Reconciliation instead of retaliation. Prayer instead of revenge. And then a list of uh, the hidden righteousness. So praying, giving, and fasting for the sake of the Father who sees in secret and rewards. And then the prohibitions. Don't worry about material things. Don't worry about worry. Uh, Don't be harsh with others. Don't impose the gospel. And then the imperatives. Ask, seek. Enter into, pay attention, build on the rock. A 15 minute sermon that I think really kind of brings together a lot of aspects of the Christian life. Now, how shall I ask a question here to engage you? Is there anything about this? Yes.
1: Question about salt and light. Um, some denominations use that um, as a, what, they say that you can fall away, you know, that salt, if salt loses its saltiness, then what good is it? And therefore, you know, if you're a Christian and you start sinning again, then you're not, you're no longer saved. And we, you know, we don't believe that you can be snatched out of his hand, right? Right. So, I guess I struggle with that passage. You know, like, what does that mean? Because, to me, salt cannot lose its saltiness. It is salt. Mm -hmm. It cannot... You know, not be salt. So, I guess can you can you like break that down for me for a
0: little bit? <laughs> what does he mean by it, using it saltiness? He's using it certainly positively here. He's not giving this idea of um, of warning Christians so much as giving a positive identity for what it is to be to be salty. I. I we have other passages in Scripture that do talk about us sort of losing, grieving the Holy Spirit, losing our edge and all of that. That doesn't imply that one loses their salvation. I think the only ground in Scripture that talks boldly about falling away applies to the, persist, per, the person who persistently refuses to respond to God in Christ. Um, Outside of that, we have great assurance that um, God is holding onto us. And uh, so when Jesus speaks of sinning against the Holy Spirit, that is the sense in which I think Jesus is addressing that, where there is a personal, absolute and uh, refusal to respond to God. Um, We still have that challenge, though, I mean, to live into what it is to be salty to live into what is light, um, and and not ignoring our own identity in Christ. Right.
1: So, um, could you speak a little bit more on do not force the gospel on
0: others? Yeah, you know, the context of throwing pearls before pigs. Um, and... Uh, I think when we approach the world as if they were consumers to buy our Jesus product, that's a kind of imposition on them. When we talk to people as if, just sign the dotted line and then you belong. And we don't talk to them as as real people uh, coming to a real place of conviction and repentance and understanding. When it's like we throw truth at people rather than really engage people in life. Um, I think that that is what Jesus is getting at. And it's a great burden if you feel like uh, you need to do that. You need to market Jesus. And the reason people don't respond is because you're not marketing him effectively. Uh, I think we have to live as the church. Openly, freely, boldly, happily. And that is a compelling testimony. That's a witness, not an imposition. And I think people are pretty good at telling the difference between those two. Um, If we just week after week at the Advent said, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, get on board, I think we'd be casting pearls before pigs. We would not be presenting the gospel the way it thoughtfully, carefully, life-relatedly should be presented. Anything that I've said or implied that that may run contrary to how you envision the Christian life? That's a negative way of putting the question, I realize, but I can't think of a positive way of putting it. Um, you'd have to be probably pretty bold to be able to articulate that, but I'm inviting you to be bold. Or to put it another way, what concerns do you have about living the Christian life? One
1: of going back to this do not force the gospel on others. And just before that, we are not to judge others harshly. So um, if we're determining who is a pig, that sounds harsh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, the analogy is don't cast your pearls before pigs. Um, it's not identifying people harshly as pigs it's that if you treat them as consumers you're casting pearls before pigs you're not treating them the way you should be treating them so don't link those two keep them a little keep them separate um, see the the analogy isn't working in such a way as to define other people as pigs but the act of kind of falsely, superficially marketing the gospel of Christ is treating them like consumers, i.e. pigs. That's the problem. Think
1: yes? You also say that in that illustration, it's treating the gospel like a wasted pearl. To, you're, you're taking something precious and being cavalier were silly.
0: The right. Um,
1: that would be the flip side of that. You don't want to it just is. treat it like it's some sort of little um, five steps to happiness thing and, and throw it out there like you were talking about throwing truth in people. Um, it is a precious pearl. You're wasting it if you're throwing it in front of pigs. They're just gonna trample it down and you'll never
0: find it in the mud. And so we have to treat it as precious in front of others. That's also to, you know, pedagogically, experientially, it's a realization that we can treat the gospel with a kind of familiarity that's damaging, a kind of flippancy and a superficiality that robs it of its truth and value, its pearlness. Um point
1: most of the concepts you're talking about here are really not that hard to understand it's but it's a matter of degree I I mean I I guess most people would agree as far as material things don't worry about life you know Mm -hmm. you're on a spectrum and you do have to eat every day you do have to live you do have to do lots of things Uh, but it's how much do you do that versus not worrying at all about anything. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's just a matter of degree, and I guess what, what you think is balanced, somebody else might not think is balanced. Uh, and that's where the difficulty comes in, the hardness.
0: And probably who is instrumental in determining the degree. Is our life in Christ instrumental in determining that degree, or is the culture around us instrumental in yeah, determining if the degree? The
1: culture, you're, you're
0: up. So we want to be kind of immersed in the Word of God, and that helps us to find that balance, that wisdom, that, that shape of how that's to look.
1: Uh, I'm struck by two passages here. One, the uh, Article 12, about uh, <clears throat> the necessarily springing out of uh, fruit, necessarily springing out of a tree, which implies some sort of uh, lack of control or sort of or crisis, are going to work, and that fruit will necessarily spring forth. <coughs> Comparing that with like building a house on a, on, on a bedrock and, mm-hmm. and gives one the sense that there may be sort of uh, at least a, a, like a cooperation with that spirit who's beginning to work. And I, and I think that's a hard, uh, you know, are, are we building the house or is, is God building the house? And if God's building the house, how are we cooperating with him building the house? Is that making sense? What what I guess what role do we play in growth?
0: Well, given that Jesus concluded the sermon by saying ask, seek, knock, by you better pay attention here. You ought to discern between good fruit and bad fruit toward the end of the con- and then build the house on the rock, not on the sand. There's a lot of uh, responsibility, personal agency individual accountability that is part of the Christian life. No two ways around it. Um, And we would, um, I think, wrongly cut off the discussion if we always stayed sort of on uh, the basis of how one comes to Christ. If that was our only message. Not what Christ does to transform our life, but what Christ has done for us only. Because what Christ has done for us only is to radically transform how we look at life, i.e. building on the rock. Um, and there's, I, I don't think there's any incompatibility between the organic analogy of fruit that's brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit and our own sense of personal engagement and action and agency in that work. And I, that's a paradox, but then the incarnation is the big paradox of the divine and human. And that's uh, so in, in some respects, I think there is a, a kind of willed passivity within the life of the Christian. Giving yourself to the oh, giving yourself to the Lord and um, and yet a, a real sense of responsibility. Well, according to the bells, it's time to go. Uh, thank you for inquiring as to life at the Advent. May the God of hope fill us with all peace and joy. And as we put our trust in him, may our hope abound through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.